Today's interview is made possible by the VIEW Conference, the biggest computer graphics conference in Italy. For more information about the conference and to purchase tickets, please visit our website, viewconference.it. This year's dates are from the 17th to the 22nd of October here in beautiful Turin, Italy. We hope to see you next October. Hi, everybody. My name is Marilena Gutierrez. I am the director of the VIEW Conference. We are here with the directors of Shanda Sheep Farmageddon. Can you tell me uh, what brought you into animation? Do you want to go first, Will? No, you go ahead, Rich. Well, I, I always loved to draw as a kid. I love comics uh, growing up. I still do. Um, and I wanted to try and find some way to make them move. And so um, I went to college and I studied graphic design. Um, and then a friend of mine was doing a night course there in animation. And so I went along to sort of like sit with him and it was just, it blew me away, everything that was going on. And I sort of, I, I'd found what I wanted to do. It sort of combined everything that I loved. I love movies, I love comics. And so I was like, this is for me. And so then I sort of finished my course and joined his course. Uh, and from then on, I just, I got the animation bug. So I've, I've studied it. I have um, went to university to study it. And then I've worked on many, many short films before I uh, went and did my master's degree at the National Film School. I made a short film there that was seen by the uh, owners of Ardman and they invited me to come to Ardman to work here. So then I joined Sean the Sheep on series three as a storyboard artist. Uh, and from then on, I've sort of worked my way up through it. So I was a writer on Sean the Sheep and I was a head of story on um, one of the half specials and then working my way through features up until Farmageddon. I also love drawing as a kid um, and I love writing stories. And... And then one year, I think I was about eight years old, my parents borrowed a video camera and I had to go animating stop motion with some Lego figures. And I just fell in love with it as a hobby. And so I spent much of my childhood making these miniature films at home um, on my you know, kitchen table. Um, and I started uh, heavily inspired by the work of Ardman, so the character Morph and Wallace and Gromit. I started writing letters to the company and, um, and many years later, I got, I got to visit when they were actually making a close shave. I was about 14. Eventually, I went off to uni to study a degree in animation up in Edinburgh. And that was really a great course for learning how to, how to make films. So my, my sort of technical side is learning as a hobby, really. I've learned over the years how to animate. But learning how to make films, I learned to college and then I learned to Ardman. Um, I got a job on Chicken Run, um, a summer job, making chicken wings for the animators. And then over the course of the next 20 years, I worked on various projects, but worked my way through the, through the animation department. And ultimately, I got work with Nick Park on Early Man as his animation director before joining Rich to direct Farmageddon. I'd like to ask you about your mentors and your storytelling heroes, folks who have influenced your work and also your life. 
Growing up, I was a huge fan of um, uh, Walt Disney films. Um, I grew up with Jungle Book and Dumbo and Pinocchio. Those were sort of my, we had them at home. And so I watched them sort of constantly. I love those films. And then when I became an animation student, I had some amazing tutors. My tutor, Samantha Moore, who's a documentary animation filmmaker, sort of really pushed me. And then when I went to the National Film School, um, it's got sort of, Caroline Leaf was one of our tutors. She's a sort of very famous Canadian uh, director. Um, and then I would just, I would write to people that I really admired, not just directors, but also sort of story artists and, and uh, animators, just sort of like how they did things, would they look at my work. So I wrote to, I had, one of my heroes was Joanna Quinn. She's a really sort of fantastic um, 2D filmmaker. Um, and so she sort of critiqued my work for me and she sort of gave me some advice, which was really helpful. And then I find that my colleagues would always be doing things. And so they were very inspiring. Like some of my um, classmates went on to work at Pixar and they were sort of amazing animators. And then others, um, they set up their own studios in London. So it's just sort of being surrounded by people who are really um, creatively driven and sort of constantly just trying things out was really, really important to sort of like finding my, my voice as a filmmaker. From my point of view, I, I loved watching the movies that uh, Rich and I both grew up in the 80s and there were so many great films in that era. I loved action and comedy and adventure. So I think early on, I, I fell in love with the, the filmmaking style of Steven Spielberg. I really loved um, Indiana Jones and... Uh, well, loads of his films. I mean, there are so many. Um, but also, animation played a big part of my childhood. And I, I remember seeing Dumbo, not Dumbo, sorry, that was Riches. I saw um, Pinocchio. No, I didn't. What am I talking about? I did watch these. my films. life. <laughs> I just absorbed, I've absorbed everything Rich said. Um, no, I actually saw Bambi at the cinema. And it was my earliest memory of the cinema. And it was obviously that moment where Bambi's mum is shot and it will always stay with me. It's so just, sad. Yeah, incredibly sad, incredibly moving. And I think I realised at that point, animation was an amazing art form for telling stories. And then, um, and then a few years later, I watched The Lion King. And I remember it was the first film I saw at the cinema that I wanted to watch again. And I went back. So I saw that twice because I was just so inspired. But I love the colours, the music, um, the energy, the acting, everything about it. Um, and then to answer, your, to answer your question, I suppose influences beyond that, I, I was heavily influenced, as I said, by the work of Ardman. So I, I took a lot of inspiration when I went to college from... Nick's films, but also Pete and Dave's and, and Richard Starzak, who made some great films too in the early years of Ardman. Um, and also a guy called Michael to Dr. Witt, who you probably know, he's um, a fantastic filmmaker and I loved his timing and his style. So I, I managed to speak to him over the course of my um, degree. And also after my degree, when I made a short film, I, I approached him and asked him to sort of mentor me and give me some feedback. So he was a really great source of inspiration for, uh, for my journey. Now I want to ask you about the origins and genesis of Farmageddon. 
where does the story come from and how did it develop? And how did you take the concept forward from the first Shanda Sheep film to Farmageddon? When we made the first film, me and Will both worked on it. Um, a lot of the time we struggled with the idea of would a silent film work um, and how would it work? And so there was a lot of um, discussions about how we would do that. And then as the first one was sort of wrapping up, we realized um, that it, it did hold together. It did work as a film. You could s sustain a story for that long with no dialogue. Um, and so we started to sort of sit down just as the first one was coming to an end and talk about ideas for a sequel. Um, and so we discussed the idea that the first one was a very sort of low concept idea that Sean wants a day off and he goes to town. And then we started to work what sort of high concept ideas would fit in Sean's world. Um, and so we, we'd sort of throw a lot of ideas around and then we started to realize that um, isolated farms feature very heavily in sort of UFO folklore. And so then we started to go, oh, we could make a sci-fi film, like it would lend itself to that sort of um, genre. But then it becomes a question of what sort of sci-fi film are we going to tell? And so then we, um, this is the, over the course of a year, talk about lots of different scenarios that Sean and the gang could go through. So we started to settle on the idea that um, an alien would crash on the farm and Sean would meet her and then they would have this adventure. And so visually we would work in a much wider aspect ratio to get a sort of grander sense of the world, but also to create this sort of sense of isolation that the farm is very isolated. Um, and so we could go into our space and feel the sense of scale there as well. That sort of like when Sean and Luda are lost, they feel very lost in this big frame. It's a really long, slow process because there's a lot of versions of ideas and stories that don't go anywhere. Um, and thankfully, they're all locked in my memory where I never think of them ever again. <laughs> Literally hundreds of versions of the big picture of the story, like an alien lands, who does it meet? How does that story play out? And then once we've sort of settled on the actual story of Farmageddon, uh, we then do that with every scene going, what if Sean meets Lula here? What if Bitzer arrives? What if the farmer doesn't know about these things? So just sort of making sure that it all feels right and it all feels that it's coming from the characters, that this journey feels genuine to the characters themselves, that Sean would meet Lula and would instantly sort of form this bond with her and want to help her um, and not realise that like he's getting himself into a whole heap of trouble by doing that. I'll pick up on a couple of things Rich mentioned there, which is that firstly, the, the look of it, we were really keen, as Rich said, we really wanted to expand it and make it feel bigger, more ambitious. Um, and stylistically, you know, we were, try we were riffing on the sci-fi genre. So we've got lots of really moody scenes, um, atmospheric scenes, nighttime scenes, which the first film didn't really get a chance to explore. And then the other thing is, I think we were both keen that it didn't feel like a sort of sequel, really. It felt like its own standalone film. We didn't really want to go back and bring up characters that were in that first film, Trumper and, and the Animal Shelter and Slip. We wanted to make a, a new story with new characters. And so I guess our, you know, our influencers, uh, Mark and Richard, who both obviously wrote the first one and directed it. They were both involved as um, executive producers and Mark wrote the second one with us. So 
we had that sort of um we had that input you know it was within that same world but we took it in a slightly different direction with this brand new character who we wanted to be really exciting and vibrant and colorful and i think that's the other thing that the film has a lot of appeal you know it's got this uh almost sugar-coated um alien who's just full of excitement and fun for sean to to mess around with this is your first feature as directors how did you channel your previous experiences into this new role it's a good question because i don't think anything probably can prepare you for the experience of directing a film and you know we're working in a, a big and well established studio like ardman um so we've we've both worked on features at ardman and we know many things about the process but i think every film is quite unique and every um film has challenges i think with this one it was all about um from the very beginning we were running um we were running to create a film that was hugely ambitious in terms of uh, action and bringing in the new characters and again a storyline that has no dialogue but is quite complicated i brought what i knew with me but i learned a lot along the way and definitely bounced off rich and you know we were yeah we were thrown in it together we had our our support network around us but actually ultimately we were just passionate about the story and and working with a very talented team of people so that's the best sort of combination coming from a story background um i'm i'm very used to pitching ideas and also um pitching sort of shall we say half baked ideas that people will collaborate and make stronger i've worked with uh, richard starzak who created Shaun the Sheep and I've worked for Nick Park and Pete Lord so like I've I've got used to doing this for lots of other directors and sort of them giving me notes on their films and so I was able to sort of bring that sort of um that mindset really that it's like I don't have to solve it but I have to present it to everyone and then the team the whole crew will sort of make it something more than just the sort of what me and Will could create on our own And so it's a huge collaborative effort and I always loved working with it sort of like the animators and the art department and the designers because you just go I think she should be fun or she should be something that Sean would love and fall in love with immediately mm-hmm. and then run with it for a very long time and you, you just sort of get to sit back and enjoy someone else's creativity and then sort of just gently nudge or guide them through the process to go that's it that's perfect. And so it's just that on a sort of daily basis at different levels so musicians, animators, design everything it just becomes that so um that ability to keep pitching things and sort of staying optimistic even when your sort of pitches maybe don't go quite how you planned was really really crucial what were the principal influences on Farmageddon both thematically and visually we worked with a concept artist Aurelian who created these really beautiful um color colorways for us to then work from in terms of our cinematographer and the rest of the art team and a, a lot of that was influenced by the films we watched you know as we were growing up but also in in reference to this film we watched tons of sci-fi movies all the way back from the sort of early early ones the black and white ones all the way through to modern day things like uh, gravity and arrival and i guess all of that gave us a, a sort of palette 
and a tone to work with. We knew we wanted to cover a certain amount of um, time in the film. So Rich early on created a sort of time scale and that time scale, which went from a lovely sort of early evening, warm cornfield glow all the way through to nighttime, all the way through to the, the end of the film, which is obviously all at night and in space. That really gave us the basis for the the journey through those different scenes. We were both huge fans of uh, Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis, so we talked a lot about sort of using light in a very magical way, sort of like a heightened reality, which was really important. And then, just as a sort of like sci-fi nods, there's there's nods to um, Stanley Kubrick as well. It's sort of really sort of strong lighting and very sort of like staged compositions we were sort of very talked about that a lot um the sort of the staging of composition making sure that you feel the characters and you feel the environment they're in and sometimes it can be quite open and golden like the, the corn in the farm we talked about the sort of golden light and sort of feeling of warmth and then the underground base we talked a lot about sort of like underwater caves and sort of this cold harsh feeling that like you are in a very dangerous place now. And so all the lighting is very sharp and harsh. The farmer's version of a sci-fi theme park is very rubbish. So it's like, it's made really quickly. So it feels like when there's sort of like really terrible fairs you've been to that overpriced for everything. But then the idea that a real spaceship would show up. So it's got this sort of huge, colossal sort of magical glow. What do you think makes uh, Sean the Sheep so appealing? The idea is that they're a family. And so we, we think of them as like sort of like the farmer is the dad and then they're sort of um, brothers and sisters and friends and sort of nieces and nephews. And I think a lot of audiences see themselves or their family or their friends in the series. And so it resonates in different ways where we have a sort of, like I said, we have the sort of, guy who always wants to have fun and wants to bring all his friends with him and so we have that sort of character but then there's Bitzer who's sort of like he's trying to have fun with everyone and at the same time be responsible so there's like there's lots of older siblings that sort of fit that role and go I see myself in that area and then there's Timmy who's so sort of like sweet and innocent and so I think it resonates a lot of people with this sort of story and often when we come up with the ideas we just sort of tell stories about our own lives and the sort of different scenarios we've been in. And that's generally, they generally form the basis of a lot of our episodes. And so weirdly, the more sort of open and honest you are, the more it resonates with people around the world, which is a sort of really wonderful thing that like, if you, if you can capture some sort of truth, there's a sort of universality to it. Sean is just such a great concept for a character. He's a, he's a sheep that acts like a little boy wanting adventures and having fun and getting away with mischief. And I think the fact that he doesn't speak makes him incredibly universal. So everyone around the world can identify with that, you know, that character that just wants to have fun. Um, he's a, he also, on top of that, he looks really cute. He looks really funny. He's got a great, very simple design, but one that with those big eyes and that, that funny little hairdo, it just appeals to people of all ages. With the introduction of Lula, there's an underlying message of tolerance and inclusivity. 
How important was that subtext to you? And how did you keep it in balance with the uh, rest of the action? The idea that Sean would meet someone and want to help them, it just feels so natural to Sean. He's got such a sort he's a rascal, but he's a rascal with a heart of gold. And so the idea that he would want to help Lula and sort of like try and get her home, but not realize that she's sort of like, she's helpless. She's a little, she's a baby essentially. Um, and so just making sure that that always feels true to what's going on. And then likewise with, um, with our sort of antagonist, Agent Red, we, we set off early on with the idea that we would try and redeem her, um, that we didn't want a sort of like arch villain, sort of very sort of black and white, that she's, she's got this sort of tragedy in her past where she's seen something and no one's believed her. And so it's sort of, it's fueled her down the wrong path. Um, so that she's sort of, she's desperate to prove that she wasn't lying. And so it's like, we have to find a way to sort of solve her as well. So that's like, she feels like when the story's ended, she's become more rounded and she's grown. And so the sort of the themes of sort of like friendship and inclusivity are there. And also um, responsibility is the big one. We always talked about Bits was the older brother. Like Sean gets makes all the mischief, but Bits has to take all the responsibility from the farm. He's always been told off. And so it's a chance for Sean to feel what that must be like, to sort of suddenly have to look after someone younger than him and be more caring and sort of think about someone other than himself. The only thing I'd add is that um, I think our Agent Red backstory actually cemented that feeling that Lula was, you know, it it was the themes around um, tolerance and inclusivity. It, It totally sort of is underpinned by the way Agent Red reacts at the end. So I think that was a, you know, something that we were hoping would come across to the audiences and it seemed that it did. The name Lula, how did you choose it? Does it have a special significance? Oh, it's got a very good story, which Rich is going to explain. Not that good a story. <laughs> it is good. <laughs> I'm a big fan as a kid of space travel and space exploration. And so I looked up the names of all the crafts that have gone into space. And so her name is the Luna Landa. So she's Lula. And so I was looking at things. So I was looking at like, the Saturn V rocket, originally I named her Safi. And then I was just going, taking letters from them and just sort of smushing them together. I was going, Lula just sounds so lovely. It just rolls off the tongue, Lula. She keeps running around telling everyone her name and then running off. Just to add to that, it was something that I think Nick Parker suggested in one of our screenings that we might have her fairly early on say her name and thinking back you know we always have names for all the characters in all our films partly because the model makers have to name all the puppets and so in the first Sean film they've all got names but actually you don't know most of their names you know unless they have a little name badge like Trumper um, you don't know what they're called so it was great that we could have a character that was you know that was identifiable everyone knows Sean and, and Lula she, um, she had a, a lovely name with a lovely creation that she could say herself. So I think that was a, a real bonus. I would like to know about the climation process. What are some of the challenges or some of the benefits? There's an immediacy and a sort of tactile quality to it, which is really sort of wonderful to see, like, um, 
it is like a miniature film set when you go onto the floor, like um, all the puppets are there, the sets are there. There's a sort of, it feels very real immediately. And at the same time, it is the magic of the animators. Like you, it looks beautiful, but it's not alive yet. And then they sort of, we talk to them and we do uh, live action rehearsals. So we'll act it all out and then they will act out. So we'll feel how our bodies move through space. And then they sort of take all this information and they sort of bottle it up inside and then they animate. So we won't see them for maybe a week or more as they work their way through the scenes. So there's this amazing spontaneity contained within it as they're working, as it sort of moves forward, because they can't go back like 50 frames and change something like a sort of 2D pose to pose. And so they're sort of just channeling all this all the way through it. And so when you then see the rushes, there's a sort of, there's an amazing quality to suddenly see those puppets come to life, which I think is quite magical because you know, you know the illusion is there and at the same time you believe they're real, which I think is, is the real sort of charm of stop motion animation. The thing that I find most amazing about stop motion is it is like a, it's like a live action performance in that you, you get one take and you can never repeat it exactly. You can't finesse it. You know, what the animators deliver is, is unique each time. So if we, if we haven't quite caught what we need to in the shot, we have to do the shot again. And then it's a completely different shot. You know, it's never the same twice. And that's what makes it quite organic, I suppose. Um, it's challenging. It's very challenging because Sean the Sheep is, he's about that big. And there are some shots in the film Oh, Rich has got one there. <laughs> that, that's, that's how big he is. Yeah, that's the size of him. So, so the animators that have to do some really nuanced performance with this puppet, we call them puppets because they are like... Oh, you know. What magic. All right, when you come to the VIEW conference, you have to bring them, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's, that's how big she is. Like, she, she's that small. Yeah. Will you carry on? So that, so you know, we've got a camera, uh, a digital stills camera, about four centimeters away from her face, and an animator has to go in there with a pin and try and move her eyes and, and get that expression and performance. And it, I spent many years animating, but you know, we were asking for shots on this film that I thought were almost impossible to do, and it's the dedication of the puppet making team and the animation team and the lighting team that we get these little moments in the film that feel really genuine as Rich said you watch it and you hopefully you forget that you're watching little 10 centimeter high plasticine puppets I think everyone watching knows somewhere in the back of their mind that they are watching real things as Rich said but as a director it's incredible to be immersed in the film that we're making you know we spent a long time working in storyboard and we've got the script obviously and we've got these images in our heads of what things will look like and then we work with these teams of artists who build them for real and then we walk around this huge industrial warehouse in Bristol and we walk from a miniature supermarket with hundreds of tiny props all with sci-fi references into a, a wide open cornfield with a you know, a farmhouse, beautifully made farmhouse in the middle of it. And I think as a director, that's just the best, being able to physically see the world that you're, you're making a story about. 
How many animators did you have and how did you go about keeping everyone on the same page creatively? At its peak, we probably had about 30 animators, if you include the assistant animators. Um, we had uh, an anim two animation directors, actually. We had um, Grant and Lloyd, who were both responsible for sort of giving everyone the, the, those character traits and making sure everyone understood what the character should look like and how they should act. But we were very lucky in that most of the people we worked with had worked with Sean before. So they understood the world really well. And um, yeah, the, the animation team are, you know, they're the ones that create that nuanced performance um, and that comedy. So we relied on them a lot for, for making the, making the performance what it was. We have 30 units, 30 sets uh, inside the studio. And so me and Will walk around the mall every day. So we walk um, easily 10 miles every day, seeing every animator. And so um, we tell them their scene and how it fits into the film. And we screen the film every three months, roughly. And so everyone has time to watch it and sort of like digest it. And then this constant daily updates for everyone of going, um, not only from me and we're telling them, but also seeing the um, shots of other animators so they can see how the characters, particularly the new characters are developing and their personalities. It's a sort of, it is a huge collaboration of lots of different people who have sort of like uh, tested the puppets to find different ways to express um, Lula being joyous or sad and likewise sort of bitter in his costume how will he move so he looks more embarrassed than he is and things like that it's a constant sort of like back and forth with all the different artists in the studio Can you kindly elaborate on how you worked with Justin Fletcher how you integrated the vocal performances into the animation Justin's been working with Sean since the beginning. So he's got a, a long history now of, of giving that voice to him. And that means he's very comfortable and um, confident in the recording booth. And it is an incredible job that he does, along with the other actors on the film, um, because he's very good at understanding what we're trying to get across. So we would go to the voice record in London and we'd talk about the emotions in a scene and he'd watch the animatic with us and discuss it. And then he would do lots and lots of takes of those different sounds. And it's amazing how many different versions of bar we can have. We had literally thousands in the film and Rich and I would go through and listen to every single one and try and pick out the one that has exactly the right sort of intonation and emotion to it. And it's a thrilling thing to, to be with these voice actors because they're just so funny. You know, they can get so much, capture so much performance and humour in these tiny little snippets of sound. Now I want to ask you about the slapstick humour that you use in the movie. This is probably one of the oldest forms of uh, humor in cinema. Why do you think this kind of uh, broad physical comedy endures? There's a relatability to it that sort of um, transcends um, language. We, we all study um, Charlie Chaplin here at the studio 
um, and Buster Keaton and Jacques Tati. And they were all studying like Mr. Bean and Rowan Atkinson. There's this sort of quality to it that's quite magical and quite playful. It's almost like it's very childlike. And at the same time, um, there's a sort of essence to it, which you can sort of watch with all your family and everyone takes something from it, which I think is really wonderful. It's like um, when you watch theater and like you can sort of feel it sort of, it transcends ages as well, which is great. We have a festival here in Bristol, which runs every year, the Silent Comedy Festival, where they screen like lost gems. And so we're always finding new silent comedy heroes um, to sort of like uh, just inspire us and sort of like study. What is your favorite sequence in Farmageddon? I'm going to say one of my favorites is the uh, supermarket um, because it was just the moment in which Lula, I guess, was uh, her most sort of raised, having the most fun. Um, we, we'd created this character that we knew had the potential to, you know, go off the rails. And this was the moment where she did. And playing that out, um, I, I was tapping into what it feels like to be a parent and to be responsible for a child and not being able to keep track of them. And I think also because I'm slightly reserved, I would find that sort of thing really awfully embarrassing. Uh, so, in, you know, in my role as Sean, I would just be horrified at the prospect of people knowing that I was the one that was in charge. And so, yeah, so it was a lot of fun to do it. We had two animators who both um, worked on the sequence for the whole duration of the shoot um the most amazing sets you know these miniature props as i said lots of the lots of the um objects in that supermarket have references and and jokes around sci-fi so it was just a great little combination of of fun moments for for me um yeah how about you rich i would say my most memorable sequence, it's in a slightly different way, was um, when Sean meets Lula for the first time in the barn. Um, it was a really magical moment because we, we test screened it um, in a cinema in, uh, just outside London. And um, I just, Sean goes in the barn and Lula's hiding in there. All the kids in the cinema and all the families have gone quiet and they were all leaning forward. This is our new character. They don't know what she looks like. There's no posters yet, it's the test screening. And the moment she appears, there was this audible gasp where they all fell in love with her. And I remember turning to Will going like, yes, because um, we've been working on it for four years. And so no one outside of Ardman Studios has seen her yet, has heard her anything. And so, and we're adding a new character to a, an established sort of family that's been going for like 15 years. So you go, this could either go well or not so well. Um, and so the moment that they all fell in love with her was just a, such a moment of sort of like vindication to go, everyone's going to love Lula, we're going to be okay. Um, that, was, that was a great moment. Um, I would say, honestly, the most challenging moment, weirdly, was Will's supermarket scene because it took an entire year to shoot that one scene. And so the animator never left the supermarket. They arrived at the film and we told them, we're making this big sci-fi film. And you're doing the supermarket scene. <laughs> we'll see you in a year. Will, do you have a scene which was the most challenging to achieve? Yes. I mean, we had a lot of 
technically we had a lot of challenging sequences because we had a lot of sort of chase sequences. So we had one early on with the combine harvester. Um, but I think the harder of the two that I was involved with was probably the chase around the underground base, the Ministry of Defence. Um, that was really tricky. Uh, Bitzer being mistaken for an alien and then chased by these hordes of hazmat characters. Um, it was very complicated because it was a large set. It was the largest set we'd worked with at Ardman and multiple characters and lots of camera moves, which in stop motion are really hard because you basically have to animate the camera as well as the characters. So that was just a sort of complex jigsaw puzzle that the... Um, our cinematographer um, helped us sort of create that fast-paced action scene. And it took a lot of planning and then uh, several months of shooting to get it done. Art is often about creating a singular vision, yet filmmaking is a collaborative process. How do you make the two things fit together? When we pitched the idea to different crew members. The idea is always like, as when I've worked as a, not a director, is to try and understand what the director is trying to say and then to sort of um, tune into their way of seeing things. And so you try to both be part of the filmmaker's sort of intentions and then to enrich that with something from your own sort of like life or um, something that you want to add. And then if the director, agrees with you, then it sort of go, becomes part of the, the story and then like the story becomes enriched. And then this happens with hundreds of crew members. And so it's just becoming something that is, is, is greater than the sum of its parts. Now it's like, it's the idea of several hundred people all pointing in the same direction. And I think when a film really works, you can feel that everyone understood it and everyone's trying to sail the sort of ship the same way. And so, like, it's just making sure that your idea is sort of very clear to everyone uh, and trying to keep it very simple as well. We always talk about simplicity, that, like, our characters can't talk, and so we can't complicate the plot more than necessary. And so we're always trying to sort of, like, find the sort of the, the, the core in the middle that sort of carries all the way through. It's that core idea that starts very small with a small group of people and then slowly spreads out and as Rich said it's it's all about getting everyone online getting everyone to understand what we're you know what we're trying to make and and thankfully because the crew are so experienced and again because they understand the sort of language of Sean and the visual language we had a lot less struggles in that respect you know we were all mostly going in the same direction all the way through um, and then it was just a case of finessing and, as Rich said, really trying to capture that brilliant creativity from everyone that works at Ardman that, that just comes in spades from every single department and every person. What makes the story of Farmageddon particularly relevant to today's audiences? We talk about responsibility. Sean... We know that he loves having fun, but we thought he's actually, sometimes he can be quite selfish with his fun. 
And so we wanted to give him a taste of what it was like to be bitten, to be more responsible and to think of someone else other than himself. And so the idea of like meeting someone and trying to understand where they're coming from and what you can do to help them if they need your help and sort of being open to other people is sort of really sort of, I think a nice message. Uh, right now we're all sort of locked in and we can't sort of be with each other. So it's really tough. Um, but we're all trying. So I think it's really lovely, like with Zoom and with all the sort of video conferencing, we're all still trying to be with each other. And I think that's sort of, it's a very human thing to want to do, just to sort of like, just to be around people and sort of like to talk to them and hear um, different points of view, because it opens up your own mind to like ways of seeing the world that perhaps you hadn't considered. And then likewise, you will tell someone how you see the world and they but just it just gives an insight that they go i hadn't considered it that way um and now my horizons broaden representation is important why do you think it is important to portray women and people of color in strong and positive roles it goes back to what i was saying about broadening horizons and seeing stories from other perspectives. Like, um, it's so important not only to hear stories from other points of view, but also see yourself on screen, I think is massively important to go, you are the hero of this story. I read literature from all over the world and it's so um, inspiring and insightful to be taken to other places, but also to feel how some of them feel so much the same as where you live and you go these people feel the same as me it's like it's, it's breaking down barriers and borders that that aren't there anyway it's just i haven't listened and then i think the modern way of storytelling is visual it is film it is television and so it has to happen more and more and so like it's great to see more storytellers um female and people of color um um, and sort of, sort of gender identity starting to sort of like appear on screen. It's like, I'm, I'm a happy audience member. I want to listen. I have enough films with, with me in it. Like I want to hear other people's stories as well. There's an interesting thing about Sean and about Armand, which is that as we travel around the world, we got to see this film with, with some different audiences. And what's amazing is that people because we're looking at a group of animals, quite often people will infer their own gender, for example. So some of the audiences we watched this with thought Sean was a boy and some thought he was a girl. And I, I love that, the fact that we're making a story um, about characters that, that everyone can engage with. And I, I really look forward to more diverse stories from this point onwards, um, because it's incredibly important that you know, it's not just the voices of the same people getting the exposure over and over again. Um, as a viewer, I want to learn much more about different cultures and about different ways of telling stories. And I'm really excited by the fact that things are changing. I hope things are going to continue to change the way they have been. Can you tell me anything about what is next for you? I'm currently working on Chicken Run 2, which is 
come together very nicely. I saw the Rocky and the Ginger Puppets the other day. It's just, it's so amazing to see like these sort of iconic characters back in the studio. And they've begun building all the sets. It's just really exciting. And the story is really fun and sort of engaging. And like, um, we've been working on it now for close to two years. And so it's, it's starting to sort of gel together now and become the actual thing it will be. So really excited to sort of see the finished thing and share it with everyone in a few years' time. I've been working recently with Wallace and Gromit on a couple of adverts, which was uh, a really exciting experience for me to finally be, um, yeah, to be, to be bringing their mini stories to life for these adverts. And now I'm, I'm working on a, a Sean Sheep special, which is for Netflix, which is coming out this Christmas. And it's looking lovely. It's very Christmassy in our studio right now. So um, I'm surrounded by snow, amazingly. To conclude, I would like to ask you to leave us with some words of wisdom, some words of encouragement for young filmmakers out there who dream of becoming directors and animators. I, I think the obvious one is to keep making stuff. Um, but really, once you've made something, um, put it online, get out, make sure everyone can see it, but also send it to the people that you um, that are your heroes. Get feedback from them, write to the people you, you admire, who inspire you. Um, and the, the chances are they'll write back. Like animation is such a small community, like um, everyone knows everyone, so you... You'll, be, you'll find that it's a really friendly place and like everyone is trying to help everyone out. So I think it's important just to sort of reach out to your heroes and for advice and guidance because you, you might find a mentor who champions you um, and sort of gives you your break in, in the industry. I mean, that's how I did it. Like I found people online who really inspired me and I, I followed them, but I also wrote to them, which I think was really important, and sent them my stuff and said, what do you think? And they gave me advice and guidance. Good advice. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm exactly the same as Rich in that I was writing to people from an early age and I'm the living example of someone who wrote to Nick Park and said, how do I become a filmmaker? And, and here we are having just finished making a film with Sean the Sheep. So you just have to have to go for it. I guess the only thing I could add is that it does take time and if you're passionate about it, then you've got to keep keep working on it, just keep doing it because nothing happens quickly in animation. Um, th there are many, many years of, of um, you know, learning to get to where you want to go. So just enjoy the journey. <laughs>